If you would, open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. As you're turning there, do you know what the word amen or amen means in Hebrew? It means to believe. So in a lot of ways, why do we say amen, or really the primary way, why do we say amen at the end of a prayer? It's not just saying, okay, we're done praying now. It's to say, we believe that, Lord. And that's often why I'm telling you, amen, right? When you say, yeah, we believe. So there you go. So if you're new here, you will hear me say that. I want to make sure you're alive. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day, your day. And we thank you that on this day it is when your word is proclaimed to us in the gathering of the saints. It is a blessed time we have here to hear you speak to us. And so even though these things happened so long ago, Father, yet we know the truth of it is timeless. And even this very specific true event with Jonah and Nineveh, yet it reaches out and grabs us to respond in the same way. The Holy Spirit, only you enable that. Only you are the one who can empower us to respond and believe. And so we ask for your help. And we ask all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever gotten to a point in your life when you realized you had to change things up, you had to turn things around or else it would just end in an inevitable tragedy? If I'm saying it right, Wabush, just take that as the Alabama pronunciation of it, Wabush, a town in a remote part of Canada, was completely isolated for some time, but recently, according to this article, a road was cut through the wilderness to reach it. Wabush was now, uh, it had one road leading into it, which also meant only one road leading out. So if someone was going to travel down the road for either six to eight hours to get to Wabush, the only way you could leave was by turning around and going the opposite way. If I pronounce Wabush wrong, Niels, y'all correct me. But that's a really good point. The only way you could leave the town was not by just going right or left, but by turning completely around and going the opposite way. And that, my friends, is a picture of what 
repentance is. Repentance in Scripture literally means a change of mind. It, it means we learn to interpret our entire life differently. We go from being self-centered to God-centered. And we learn, it's not perfect, but we learn our entire life to live in light of the gospel of grace. That's what repentance is. Michael Horton says, before you repented, you saw yourself at the center of the universe, but now, now that you're a Christian, now you realize that you exist for God's pleasure and His glory, and that changes how you look at everything. That's what we learn in the Christian life. We learn that as we were going headfirst into our sin, we learned to turn around and go the opposite way towards God. You see, that's what Jonah was doing. He was running away from God. Remember, he was going all the way to Tarshish, away from where he should have gone, and now he's going back. That's what repentance is. But what does it look like in particular? What does it actually look like to turn your life around? Go back to verse 1. We need to see three truths this morning in this text. First, the Word of God proclaims repentance. Second, the Word of God prescribes repentance. And thirdly, the Word of God empowers repentance. First, the Word of God proclaims repentance. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Here's what uh, verse 3 says. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We see here that the word of God proclaims repentance to Jonah. It proclaims a new beginning for Jonah. That's the only way we can repent, is if we get a new beginning. Now, let's make sure we don't picture God this way. Oftentimes, we can hear it said that God is the God of second chances, but the problem with that is that the word chance, it might imply that, well, now you have the opportunity to prove yourself, but that's not how God works. Because God does not, if when he saves you, he doesn't give you another chance he has fulfilled the requirements for you and now you're enabled to live a new life amen see there we go Jonah has a new beginning that's why the word of the Lord came to him a second time notice it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah meaning that it didn't well up from within it wasn't Jonah's natural intuition it wasn't his emotional feels it was an outside word that came to him and that's what the word of God is we often say today that we need to follow our own hearts but the problem is that the sinful heart does not desire to turn our life around that's why we need to hear God's word and so it comes to Jonah the second time it's very fascinating because the exact same words are being proclaimed to Jonah. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. That's exactly what happened in chapter 1, verse 2. Those same words. 
It actually reminds us, it should remind us of what happened to Noah after the flood. Remember in the very beginning when God created mankind, he gave Adam and Eve a mission. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And then there was so much wickedness on the earth we see in Genesis 6 that God brings a flood for 40 days and 40 nights that covers the whole earth. And then as the flood subsides and Noah and his family and all the animals that come out of the ark, God gives him the same command again. Genesis 9-1, be fruitful and multiply. See, this is what reminds us is that God's not a God of second chances. He's a God who is determined to fulfill his mission. Hey, come on, I, I, I say an amen before I even say amen. That's what I like to hear. When it comes to Jonah a second time, it shows us that God truly and really forgives his sins. Do you notice that God is not holding grudges against Jonah here? But isn't that what we so often do with others? Today we, we often say that all we are is what we do or all we are is what our ancestors have done. And that is often the message of despair. Because there's no hope there because we are filled with sin. But the gospel does not say that. The gospel says in Christ all your sins are forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In verse 21, how does this happen? For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, even though he knew no sin. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. How are your sins, how are my sins forgiven? God does not just forget about them. If he just forgot about them, then he would not be holy. He would not live up to his righteous standard. He transfers them from us to another. That's how he forgives us. He transfers, this is what we did in the confession of sin earlier. Our sins go on to Christ and his righteousness comes to us. That's amazing. That's what happened with Jonah even before Jesus would come to earth. It, would, it was looking forward to the one who would take Jonah's sin. See, that's what God does with us. He makes us new. He makes us new creatures. But we need to also notice this, though. The only types of people God uses in his mission are sinners. Because that's the only type of people there are, right? I love it where Jesus calls Peter. Remember Peter's uh, original name was Simon? Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus calls Peter. He says, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, there's probably a little bit of a play on words there with Peter's dad, meaning John, but Jesus is also getting at something there because Peter, like Jonah, would also run away from Jesus, wouldn't he? But yet, who does Jesus restore? He restores Peter. My friends, there is no one who God will use in this church except a sinner. Amen? It's actually amazing, too. A little side note is that as Jonah would reach the Gentiles, Peter was going to be the first apostle to really reach the Gentiles as well. And Peter, when he received the vision to go to the Gentiles, guess where he was? Joppa. Isn't that cool? 
The Bible's awesome. How is it that Jonah repents? What is it that's empowering him to repent? Well, notice here that what happened right before is that Jonah was delivered. Jonah went through the judgment of God as he went into the depths of the sea, into the belly of the fish, and then he was spat out onto dry land. He was delivered. His sins were forgiven. And notice this. Notice that it is the gospel of grace that empowers Jonah to finally go, right? Let us make very sure that the only way we will be motivated to obey, empowered to repent, is by soaking in the gospel of grace. It's not going back to a system of works. It's not going back to a system of law. It's not saying try harder. It's looking at Christ who is our power. The word of God proclaims a new beginning for Jonah. It also proclaims the same message to Jonah. You see that in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. When it says to call against it, there, there actually is a little bit of uh, a different word here in Hebrew. It actually is probably more accurately translated, call out to it. It's interesting, I think Jonah might be wanting to at times do God's first message. He wants to just call out against it rather than pastorally woo Nineveh to believe God. The law is what speaks against us. It shows us our sin. It shows us condemnation. It shows us what we deserve. It is against us. But the gospel is for us. God's calling Jonah to go and preach good news. But notice this. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against what? It. Notice it's not this. Notice God doesn't say, well, just go to Nineveh and call out. But call out particularly against it. You see, there's no such thing as preaching unless we speak to the it. God does not just call someone to get up here and preach. He wants to preach to you, to it. And in that preaching, in that proclamation, he wants to show you in particular that there is grace for you amidst all your sin. But yet also that you, particular, amidst all your sin, that you need to repent of it. We don't really like hearing about the it in our life, do we? We like to only talk about things of the past or things that are out there. But what God does in his word is that he puts the finger on the pulse and he says, it. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. And those sins are what you need to repent of. It does mean we have to be specific. And that's what was probably very scary about what Jonah was walking into. Here's what we know about uh, Assyria, which is where Nineveh was. Here's what we know about Assyria at the time. It, as one person says, it featured deliberate terror and atrocity as its foreign policy. <laughs> Listen to this. Uh, 
one of the kings, Asher, a serpent, the second, he, he gives this testimony as he was destroying his enemies. He says, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned, I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. I took many alive. From some, I cut off their hands to their wrists. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. One person says that he would even do this after coming across his enemies. He would skin some people alive. He would spread, out, spread them all out on a pile of corpses. And some of them he would impale on stakes and put in the middle of the pile and other ones he would put on stakes surrounding the pile he would often use skins of humans on the walls that sounds awful and it should because that is the it that God wants to show mercy to that's it we often think that God only wants to show mercy to the tamed to those who have it all together, to those who haven't gone too far, or for those who have done enough to cover up their past. But the gospel is so clear that it's proclaiming mercy to these types of people. Amen? Do you think Jonah was scared? <laughs> of course. Maybe he was even, as he would walk into Nineveh, he would be seeing people impaled. You see, it's scary to proclaim the gospel today. I think we've seen that very clearly over the years. But we need to remember, as George Whitfield once said, we are invincible until God decides to bring us home. My friends, it is scary. It's always been scary for the church. But our duty is to proclaim God. God's word in all of what it says and trust that God will protect us and trust that God will transform people. He tells Jonah, proclaim the message that I tell you. In other words, don't proclaim your own message. Don't proclaim just what's popular. See, the church cannot only proclaim what is popular and then just remain silent on what's not. Here's what Luther said in the middle of the Reformation. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that one little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. We are often afraid to talk to the it, aren't we? And I get it. I get it from doing youth ministry, from doing RUF, from doing this, because people will leave. And it's so tempting to want to say, let's just gather people because we want to sound good, we want people to like us. But here's actually what we're doing there. We can, if we're not careful, it's like we want the bride of Christ to commit an affair against Jesus to like us. This is Jesus' word. This is Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus' church. This is Jesus' sermon. 
and he loves you. And all we are, we're not even the shepherd, we're the sheepdog who just follow his orders. You know, whip, 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 you know, whatever it is. We go where he goes. And whenever he, when he puts his finger on the pulse, we need to listen to it. Because he is speaking to us as we really are. That's what Jonah was called to do. Jonah was called to preach God's message, not his own. I love what one guy, Doug Stewart, he says, Jonah was held to a tight leash in terms of his verbal freedom. And that's what we are too. We're held to a tight leash. But that should also give us great confidence, brothers and sisters. Because if we know for a fact that we are held to the tight leash of God's word, then you can trust that what you hear from God's word is true for you. Amen? Do you know what that means? You can confidently, as long as it's according to God's word, you can leave today knowing that what was proclaimed there, no matter how much my conscience hurts me because of my sins, no matter how much suffering clouds my vision of God's promises, what was just proclaimed, I can know for a fact that that is my reality if I'm a Christian. Is that not amazing? That's why we proclaim God's word. The word of God proclaims repentance to Jonah. It also proclaims repentance to Nineveh. I love what it says here, the second sentence of verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. You might have a footnote there where it says exceedingly great city, where in the Hebrew it can also mean a great city to God. And that's probably actually what it means there. Yeah, it was a big city. But it's also showing that amidst all their heinousness, that was an important city to God. Is that not awesome? And that's how God looks at you. Amidst all your sin, despite all your sin, do you not see how gracious God is for you? I wonder if we ever, well, of course we do, I don't need to wonder. Of course we struggle with thinking we're too sinful for God, right? Right? We often love to do this. I, I'm going to use Eddie because I love Eddie. I often love to say, well, I don't know if God can save me. But he can save Eddie. I know Eddie's a sinner, but I'm a different case. And you know what? I bet you Eddie can do that to me. <laughs> we often love to do that to think, well, I'm different. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. The same grace of God that can save Eddie can save me. Is that not amazing? It's a great city to God. Cities are important to God, not only just as creator, but that God has his people in those cities. But we also actually need to give a little bit of a pushback to a recent movement over the past 10 years in evangelicalism is that we've kind of gotten to the point where we've thought that only cities are important and not towns. My friends, everywhere is important to God. Stillwater is just as important to God as New York. God loves the city of Stillwater. And that's why he sent not just a church, but numerous churches here. But notice how God wants to care for the city of Nineveh. Not merely in a common grace way, not 
not merely in just the general welfare of the city, but here's how God will show his care for the city of Nineveh. Proclaiming the word of salvation. He wants to see their conversion. He wants to see their sanctification. He wants to build up the bride of Christ. And that's what we need to remember about where do we see God loving a city where his word is proclaimed? That's what's so awesome. Every single Sunday as we come in, it's a reminder, God loves us. It's amazing. That's why, yes, we, we serve the city. Yes, we support the city. We find ways to do mercy ministry. But actually, we're getting it wrong if we just sit there and say, well, we're just going to live different until people ask us, you know, why are you different? And that's it. Positively, the mission, it's not just to love one another. It's to proclaim the gospel. That's why we preach. That's why we pray. That's why we pastor. That's why we plead with people. And that's what God was sending Jonah to do. When Jonah would have visited the city of Nineveh, probably, and most likely, was not as we typically picture it where Jonah is just randomly going around saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, amen. And then go over here. And, you know, and no one just, they're like, who is this random guy? That's probably not the way it happened. Nineveh would have had its own formal protocol where any outside visitor would have kind of gone through these hearings and probably what would happen is that as he presented himself he would go to one meeting and he would preach and he would go to another meeting and he would preach until he went throughout out the whole city this would have taken a long time and that word just spread like wildfire you look at the sermon and you say hey that's a really short sermon i wish wilson would preach that short here's what's probably happening what most commentators say it's just a summary of his sermon Probably what it's doing here is that the reason why it makes it so short is to downplay the focus on Jonah and to look at how Nineveh will repent. Jonah most likely is going to be saying, hey, something really crazy just happened to me. Which, by the way, they would have had a hard time believing as well. And as he's proclaiming, saying, look, as... As God delivered me from the fish, as he delivered me from running away from him, if you turn to him, he will deliver you. It would be a message of law and gospel. It's a very simple message that Jonah proclaims, and that's what the word of God is. It's, it proclaims a simple message, and it's not that it's hard to understand, but it's hard to swallow. And that's particularly the reason why the church is often persecuted today. It's not, it's not hard to understand. It's just hard to embrace. Jonah says 40 days. Generally speaking, that would have meant there's a short time that you have to repent. This is not the time to delay. This is not, as Jesus says, one person says, Lord, I want to follow you, but I need to go back and bury the dead. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Every single time you come into church, forgive me for being morbid, but you don't know if it's going to be your last one. The time is imminent for you and me. 
The time is not later. As often preachers have said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. The call for you is to repent now. Not, let me go have some fun in college first, and then I'll finally get my life together. (laughs) That does not happen. But rather, the call for you is to believe now, no matter how old or how young you are, to believe now when God causes you to be born again. But yet the 40 days also reminds us of this. It reminds us of the 40 days of the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. It reminds us of the 40 days that Noah was interceding on behalf of Israel on Mount Sinai. It reminds us of the 40 years when Israel was in the wilderness. In other words, in those three scenarios of 40 days or 40 years, there was judgment and then there was salvation. Do you think, do you think that's going to happen again here? Judgment and then salvation. Law, gospel. Isn't that amazing? The Word of God proclaims repentance to us even today. Jesus is really, when he began his ministry, his first word was repent. Peter in the sermon uh, on Pentecost, after people were saying, what shall we do? He said, repent. Acts 17 verse 30 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The Bible proclaims repentance, to turn. As our own confession says, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, a doctrine that is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. That's the good news for you today. The good news is that you are hearing someone proclaim to you from God's word, repent. The devil wants to keep you from hearing that message, but God is saying, repent, come to me. But how do I do it? What does that even look like? What's, what's, the, what's the standard? How, how, do, how do I know if I'm going about this the right way? That's what the text answers. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of God proclaims repentance, but the word of God also prescribes repentance. It shows us how repentance is supposed to be done. Here's one thing that's awesome is that whenever you go pick up a prescription medicine, what is it? It's a particular medicine for your particular condition, right? That's why it's there. The doctor, after looking at where you are, prescribes you a medicine that he is hoping that you will be healed with. And that's actually what repentance is. It's not just general of just saying, Lord, I've sinned, okay, now I'm good. See, even the devil knows he sinned. We know Pharaoh in Exodus, he even says he knows he sinned, but he didn't repent. Repentance is prescribed, it's particular, it looks a certain way. But here's what it does not look like. It doesn't look like what is proclaimed in Roman Catholicism in the doctrine of penance. Penance is 
doing something just out of fear of punishment. You would go and confess your sins to the priest, and then the priest will tell you what you must do in order to make satisfaction for your sins. In other words, this, if you want to be forgiven, go and do X, Y, and Z, and then you can be forgiven. That is not repentance. That's focused on self, not Christ. But also, this is not repentance. What Arminianism often proclaims is putting the focus on this. Is the quality of your repentance good enough? That enough word is often what gets us in trouble. Did you have enough emotion, enough resolve, enough victory over your sin? And until then, your repentance is not true. That's not repentance. Why? Because it still focuses most on us. Even today, we love to say we just need to be our best self. Sometimes it's even proclaimed in the church, Christ came so that you could become your best self. But Christ did not come for us just to improve our current life. He came to make us new. He came to cause us to be born again. He came, so as Romans 6 says, so that we might die to ourselves and live unto him. And that's what we see in the life of Jonah. It says that Jonah repented in, in, the verse, or in the first sentence of verse 3, according to the word of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Instead of running away from God, he repents according to God's word. It's not whatever Jonah just felt comfortable doing. It's not whatever was just relative to him or what he just thought he should do. He was looking outside of himself at God's word saying, that's how I repent. That's very challenging for those of us who are stubborn because we only want to do things our way. We only want to do things that make us comfortable but not really repent God's way. But it's also incredibly comforting to those who are very, very sensitive in their conscience because there are those of you who feel like you can never do enough, but God is telling you, Jesus is enough for you. Jesus is enough. Your rest, your salvation is not in how good of repentance you're doing. It's in Christ. You just, you just keep coming to me. He's got everything. He tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. And then we see, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This would have taken several months, most likely. It was over 500 miles, and that doesn't just you know, happen in a couple of hours for him back then. It's almost kind of risky of God to do this, right? God already, he already did a miracle. Why couldn't he just plop Jonah down right in Nineveh? <laughs> Bring up, you know, helicopters are today. Why couldn't he just make a helicopter back then? Hey, let's go right now. Isn't that interesting? He probably most likely brings Jonah back to Joppa, and then Jonah has to take probably a couple months to get over to Nineveh. It sounds really risky. It sounds like, you know, is Jonah going to do the right thing? But see, that's, that's what the gospel of grace is. The gospel of grace is not law just to try to control people. It's saying, look, you with all your sin, you are free in Jesus Christ. Sure, you could run. 
But the difference with the gospel is that it's not just words, it's power. Amen? It changes you. You don't change people by just getting them so focused on law and what they're to do. You get them focused on the Christ who enables them to obey. Jonah, he goes and he calls out to Nineveh the message that God proclaimed. And we see that there and we see Jonah's repentance. We also see repentance being prescribed for Nineveh. When it says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, there's actually kind of an ambiguity to that word overthrow. It can mean on one hand that you're turned over to your destruction or that you're turned right side up to your transformation. Isn't that interesting? But yet isn't that also exactly what the gospel proclaims? If you stay in your sin... You will be destroyed. I will be destroyed. You will be turned over. God will not be mocked. That's the reality. But if you come to Jesus Christ with all your sin, you will be transformed. Isn't that amazing? Even Nineveh. The gospel says that when we come to Jesus, he gets turned over so that we might be transformed. Amen? It's amazing. When it says that Nineveh believed God, here's where it is, it literally says, Nineveh amened the sermon. <laughs> now, I don't, think, I don't think in that they're probably like, amen, this feels really good. I think they're probably like, this is awful, but it's true. Sometimes it feels like that. But it's interesting because that same phrase, Nineveh believed God, the believed God part is used exactly of Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6. When, when Abraham looks up at the stars, he has no children, and he's very old, and God says, I'll make your children as numerous as the stars. Abraham has no power in himself, but he says, I'm just going to trust your promise. And that's what it is to believe, my friends. That's what Nineveh does. And their faith is what leads to repentance. But it is their faith that empowers repentance. They fast. They put on sackcloth. It was a sign of grief, humility, and penitence. It's something that only would be worn by the, by the poor. In other words, they're, they're, they're making everyone in their city poor in spirit. Which, by the way, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that those are who's blessed. It says that it was from the greatest of them to the least of them. Notice this. This is very important for today. There is no class difference here. There was no gender difference here. Everyone was called to repent. The victims and the victimizers. The rich and the poor. Men and women. The powerful and the powerless. The oppressed and the oppressors. See, one of our problems today is that we're only telling one group of people to change, but the gospel demands that everyone repent. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it, it just cuts through all barriers. No one has more conditions of their repentance than someone else. 
No one also has less need of full repentance than someone else. It doesn't matter what grid you put the world in. The gospel speaks absolutely through that. The gospel puts all people everywhere on the same playing field. That's what Paul says in Galatians when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. The Bible doesn't ignore those differences, but it also does not discriminate based on, the, based on those the way the world does. That's why we need to be very careful to not adopt something as an analytical tool, which, by the way, is always what worldview means. We can't adopt something as an analytical tool that doesn't come from Scripture. Scripture is our worldview. We don't ignore the way the world sees the world. We, we, we acknowledge those things. We're not going to be ignorant. But rather, what growing as a Christian is, is learning to see through all those things with Scripture. What lens are you using to view the world? And like a 3D movie, if you don't have the right glasses, you won't see the movie clearly. The Word of God cuts across all barriers and says, all men everywhere are called to repent. God tells us this very morning, and when God tells you, arise, you arise then. When God tells you to go, you go there. When God tells you to speak, you speak in that way. What God says to believe, you believe that. And who God says to repent, those people are called to repent. But what in the world is going to empower us to do this? Doesn't the Bible say that we're dead in our sins? We have no power in ourselves? Yeah. So what will empower us? The Word of God. The Word of God not only proclaims repentance, not only prescribes repentance, but it empowers repentance. Listen to this story from several years ago by one pastor named Ichabod Spencer. At a gathering of people asking questions about believing in Jesus, Spencer says, coming to a man about 30 years old, I'd seen him here three times before, and I said to him, I didn't expect you to be here tonight. I thought you would have come to repentance by this time. The man responded, I can't repent. In Ichabod's words, clearly the man was greatly despairing. Sarcastically, I replied, what an awfully wicked heart you must have. You can't repent. You love sin so much that you cannot be sorry for it. You cannot forsake it. You cannot hate it. Again, uh, Ichabod said, or excuse me, again, the man said, I can't repent. On and on the conversation goes, and the man continually declares that he can't repent. Spencer finally says, then God can't save you, for he cannot lie. And he has said to the unrepentant that they will be destroyed. You say you cannot repent, but he does not say that. He commands you to repent. The man said to Ichabod, I'm sure I've tried too long and my mind has been greatly tormented. All of it has just been for no good. I don't think I can repent. Finally, Spencer confronts him on his self-righteousness and he confronts him. The man responds to Spencer saying, do you think I'm self-righteous? <laughs> Spencer replies tenderly, I know you are. 
And that's your biggest difficulty. You've been trying to save yourself. You're trying to save yourself right now. When you tried to repent in the past, your heart was aimed after repentance as something that would recommend you to God and to give God a a reason why he should forgive you and save you. That's a self-righteous attitude. It was just an attempt on your part to save yourself rather than relying upon Jesus Christ to save you from God's wrath. You ought to go to Jesus just as you are. Be washed in his blood. Be clothed in his righteousness. Be sheltered from the thunders of God's eternal law in the atonement of Christ. You ought to go right now. You ought to go this instant. You ought to be like the Apostle Peter when he was sinking in the water when he said, Lord, save me. But instead of this, you're just looking at yourself, striving from within to try to find something in your own heart which would recommend you to God. And in this miserable state, you're making salvation a much more difficult thing than God has made it. You have forgotten the free grace of the gospel, the full atonement of Jesus Christ by his sacrifice. (laughs) The man replies after all that, I still can't repent of my own power. Spencer replies, well, you've discovered an important truth. Of course you can't on your own power. Most certainly, God does not tell you to repent by your own power. God never expects you to repent without his power, but with it. He knows you're too wicked on your own. You've been trying to repent in a way that God never prescribed for you. You've been looking to your own power rather than to his. Instead of trusting Christ, you're trusting yourself. But God is more merciful and gracious than you think him to be. He is more ready to save you. And when he commands you to repent, he does not want you to forget that all your power to repent is in the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's amazing. The man was converted. And the whole point there of what we see in that story and here with Jonah is this. What is the power to repent? God's word and the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're saying, I haven't seen any life change. Well, keep coming. Soak in the gospel of grace. This is not a place where people have everything together, by the way. Just get to know us. This is the place where desperate sinners come, including the one preaching, and we're saying, Lord, have mercy. And he does. That's how God enables us to repent. Brothers and sisters, the last call for you is this. Jesus Christ has taken away the sins of his people. There is nothing else that God the Father is looking for in you but just to look at Jesus and say, I believe, to say amen. And then when you see him, he will enable you to repent. That's what we're called for, to repent of the it as we also see the grace of Christ for our it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that in your mercy you would deliver us. Deliver us from our sins. Deliver us from our wickedness and evil. And oh, we ask that you would make us a repenting church, a people who constantly run in the sanctuary pleading with you, have mercy, and yet trusting that you do have mercy. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the mercy that's in Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.